Good evening. Welcome to our monthly Q&A night. Uh, this morning I uh, complained about uh, uh, getting hard questions and wished, wishing I got easier questions. I gave an example of that. And so this evening I walked in. Someone handed me a question. Here it is right here. Where was Jesus born? <laughs> so I asked for it. So thank you for that easy one. So let's jump into it. Oh, one more thing. Uh, as always, my inbox is open for questions, easy ones, hard ones. Um, but please get those to me written down. I'll be happy to uh, add those. And uh, sooner or later, uh, we'll get to, uh, get to all the questions. Uh, the question this evening uh, probably will be a little on the short side in answering it. One of those things I get done, I'm thinking, yeah, that's 20, 25 minutes. I could do another one and be here for an hour, but uh, we'll just stick with the 20 minutes. And if that's too short, then you'll get over it. So, <clears throat> question. Is it wrong to attend a gospel meeting or church service of a less conservative congregation? That's the question. Uh, let's just begin by nailing down exactly what this question means. Uh, because while some of you know exactly what this is about and where this is coming from, there are others of you who maybe didn't grow up in Churches of Christ or something, and this question makes absolutely no sense. So let's just begin by decoding this question. Um, let me begin this way. To, to the uninitiated observer, um, when you drive past a, a building that has Church of Christ written on the sign out front, you might assume that that church believes and does what pretty much every other place that has Church of Christ out front. You might, you might assume that they basically all believe and practice the exact same things. And the fact is that may or may not be the case. You may or may not know what that group inside believes and practices. There would be some really extreme examples of this these days. Um, you could go to some places that have Church of Christ out front that would have uh, women preaching in the pulpit that would use instrumental music uh, where the content of that preaching would be quite uh, uh, just sort of parroting, sort of uh, 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 hyper-progressive sort of cultural sort of commentary, um, which would be very unlike what happens, what happens here. You might pop in another building that has Church of Christ out front and find that when they take the Lord's Supper, they all insist on drinking the fruit, out of the, fruit of the vine out, all out of one cup, and that would be quite, quite different. Well, based on some more details the question contained, um, I'm going to put our finger on, a, on another, more, perhaps more subtle difference in, uh, in churches of Christ, and especially in how they spend the church's money. Um, there are some churches of Christ which would be, if I can use this term, more liberal in their use of the church's money, hence the conservative label in the question. There would also be churches that would be more conservative in how they use the church's money. But there would be some that, as a part of their building, might have a kitchen, a fellowship hall, a basketball gym, which were funded by the church's money. That would not be, um, that would not be a scandalous to see that. That would be totally expected. Um, or, as a part of their monthly budget, there might be a Church of Christ, which uh, might use some of the church's funds to support a college, or to support a charity, or an orphanage. Um, let me just say this, just my own sort of uh, two cents about it. Um, I think the more historically accurate labels, and I think just more downright accurate labels than conservative or liberal, uh, are institutional and non-institutional, are usually the sorts of words I use. Um, an institutional church would be one that would willingly cut a check to an outside institution like a college 
whereas a non-institutional church would be one that would not cut a check to an outside institution like a college. And we would fit that category, not institutional. And I say that because liberal and conservative are relative terms. There would be some congregations which would be more liberal than us but would be way more conservative than some, some others. And, to be frank, there would be some, uh, you know, go to a one-cup church and we would be liberals to them. Um, so those are, uh, those are uh, relative terms. And then often they're also often just sort of, um, uh, sort of insults, sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, pejorative terms to throw at. And I don't throw at people. I don't think we need to call names. I think we should just say what they are and we can agree or disagree. But I like institutional and non-institutional. So here's what the question is getting at. We are a part of a church which does not believe in using the church's money to build kitchens or to fund outside institutions. We do not believe the church should use its money that way. But let's say there's another Church of Christ down the road that does use its money for those things. The question is, would it be all right to go down the road on, say, a Monday night when they're holding a gospel meeting? That's the question with a fuller context so that hopefully we're all on the same page about what the question is. So here's the first, uh, the first route I want to take. Uh, I want to begin by briefly reviewing how New Testament churches spend their money. Um, first thing I want to do is basically justify the position this church has taken throughout the decades. Um, this is an issue that we think matters, um, about which the Bible has something to say. In the New Testament, as churches were formed, we find pretty quickly those churches collected and spent money as a part of their mission. They were commanded to give money on the first day of the week. And then we see they deployed those funds in various ways in the New Testament. And I would invite anyone to do a survey of what those churches, under the direction of the inspired apostles, what those churches used that money for. And I will just briefly summarize what you'll find when you survey the New Testament. And I kind of divide it up into three categories. The first way in which they use their money, uh, the best way I know to put it is they, they use the money, the church uses the money to be the church. The church uses the money to be the church. So God calls his people to come gather together with other disciples, to worship, to pray, to sing, to preach and listen, to teach and learn. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. Sort of a, a summary encouragement to come together, to be the church, to do the things together God has called us to do. And so we find in the New Testament... Um, the churches spend money to facilitate that. Um, that's why we have a building. That's why we have songbooks. That's why we have pew Bibles. We believe if God has called us as a church to do things like that, then we are well within our rights to use the church's money to facilitate those tasks. And so the church uses its money, in a broad sense, to be the church, to do the stuff God has called the church to do. Second, we find that in the New Testament, the church uses its money to support the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament, local churches are constantly sending money to support Paul and other men in their preaching. Paul makes an elaborate argument in 1 Corinthians 9 about how men who preach the gospel have a right to be financially supported by those with whom they are working. Now, it's an interesting turn he takes in 1 Corinthians 9 in which he argues very strongly that men who preach at a place have a right to receive support from a place. And then in the next breath he says, however, I chose not to exercise that right with you, Corinth, because you had your own issues with money and attitudes toward money. Uh, but nevertheless, he, he makes that case. Um, Philippi, Paul says, is an exemplar of supporting preachers, especially himself. 
Philippians 4.15. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. And so he is very thankful that Philippi has had a much better attitude toward uh, supporting preaching than Corinth did. And if I may say so, this church is quite exemplary when it comes to supporting the gospel, preaching of the gospel the world over. Uh, there are, I mean, literally more men than I can count who we have supported since I've been here. And I think that's a great work. We're clearly uh, fulfilling a call God has given, given to the church. And third, we find in the New Testament the church uses its money to relieve the needs of other Christians. To relieve the needs of other Christians. Sometimes this means meeting the needs of their own destitute members. So in Acts 4, members of the church in Jerusalem sold property and they placed the proceeds of those sales at the feet of the apostles who then distributed it to people who had need in the church. In Acts 6, there's a problem where the widows in the church in Jerusalem of a certain ethnic group were being neglected in the church's benevolent work. And in Acts 6, that problem is called out and addressed by the apostles. 1 Timothy 5 gives very specific guidelines in the support of widows in the church on an ongoing basis. That that was something that was done in the New Testament. And Paul has some very specific instructions about how, about who and how um, uh, widows in particular are to be supported on an ongoing basis should they have that need. So, sometimes this means supporting the church supporting its own destitute members. Sometimes this means uh, meeting the needs of members in other churches and other places. In Acts 11, it comes to the attention of the church in Antioch that a famine is coming, which will devastate many of the already very destitute brethren in Jerusalem. There's always needy brethren in Jerusalem. Um, And so they know that those brethren are going to be really affected uh, in a big way. Acts 11.29 says, The disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Jerusalem. And so they go and try to meet the needs of those brethren there. There are collections for saints in Jerusalem spoken of in, uh, in Romans, uh, Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 16, uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, big time, speak about collections being taken and given to needy saints in Jerusalem. It's worth noting, I think, None of the examples or teaching regarding church benevolence here to meet the needs of other people, um, there's no example in the New Testament of that benevolence being given, uh, of the church's benevolence to be given to anyone other than Christians. So, for example, the famine of Acts 11 is is worldwide. There's going to be a worldwide famine. Christians, we don't think, were targeted by the famine. That's not how famines work. Um, It's a worldwide, everyone is affected by the famine, Um, Christians were not the only ones affected. And yet Antioch specifically targets its charity to, quote, the brothers living in Judea. So my position and the position of our elders is really pretty simple. Um, First of all, the church's money is in a very real sense God's money. And in really no sense is it our money to do what we would say like to do with it. We, We think of it as is God's money. And that being the case, the church's money should be spent according to the will of God, if it's his, as revealed to us in Scripture. And we think the best way to determine God's will for the church's money is to look at examples in the New Testament where money was used under the direction of the inspired apostles. And the examples we find are of the church using money to facilitate the everyday workings of the church, 
using money so that the church can do the church things. Um, there are examples of money being used to support the preaching of the gospel, either locally or uh, remotely to men in other places. And there are examples of the church using its money to relieve physical needs of other Christians. Again, either locally, the needs of Christians here in this church, or the needs of Christians in other churches. The reason we don't use the church's money to build kitchens and basketball gyms, not because we hate kitchens and basketball gyms, it's because we don't believe it's the church's job to build kitchens and basketball gyms. It really is that simple. The reason we don't use the church's money to financially support orphanages or colleges is not because we hate orphanages and colleges. Maybe we hate some colleges. We don't hate colleges as a rule. But because we don't believe it's the church's job to support orphanages and colleges. It's just that simple. So again, my position, and the position I, I can speak for our elders, the position of our elders is, God has given us plenty of work to do in these ways. He has spoken positively about the church's work and how it's to use its money, <clears throat> how we're to spend the church's resources. And we believe if we simply dedicate ourselves and direct our resources in the direction God has positively said, these right here, we believe God will be pleased because we are laser focused on exactly the work God has left us to do, on exactly the work we find New Testament churches uh, doing. So I go through all of that to emphasize Whatever we say about the question, I promise we're coming back around to the question, but whatever we say about the question, I, I begin this way to emphasize that this issue, which makes one church different from another, this issue, I think, does matter. This is not something we shrug off as trivial. The fact that we don't have a kitchen or cut a check to a charity, this is not just an idiosyncrasy we have. Oh, we're, that's kind of odd about us. That's one of the funny things about it. It's not just an idiosyncrasy we have. It grows out of a conviction about what the New Testament teaches. That's, a, what, that's, that's what I'm trying to show you. So, circling back to our question. I thought long and hard about what precedent there might be in the New Testament for this question. The, the rightness of visiting uh, another church that differs on this particular issue. And... We're really, as far as I can tell, we're really without direct precedent on a number of levels. Um, for one, in the first century, there really uh, there, there wasn't a flavor of different churches in every corner that had subtle differences here and there, um, and one may or may not choose to visit those. That's just simply not the way it was in the cities where there were churches. Um, it wouldn't have been possible for anyone but someone like Paul and his traveling companions to ever in their entire lives visit more than one or two churches, probably, simply because um, there were just very few churches um, and uh, most people didn't ever travel outside their city. It just wasn't something that happened regularly in the ancient world. Further, this particular issue, this institutional question, was not one that first century churches struggled or divided over. Um, there's plenty of other issues in the first century that brethren struggled and divided over but not this one. So short of those obvious parallels, um, my best shot at this question is to give you a few examples of how people have approached this question, um, concluding with my own approach and my own, my own conclusion about it. So what I'm going to do is just sort of run through. Here's, some, here's something to think about. Here's something to think about. We'll come down, and I'll give you my two cents on this question. So to begin with that, uh, with, uh, Example from history. 
the division within Churches of Christ over this institutional issue occurred in the 1950s and 60s in the United States. Uh, prior to that, you would have been on much surer ground, assuming that most buildings that had Church of Christ out front, um, you would have been on much surer ground, assuming that they did believe and practice most of the same thing. Again, not across the board, but I think you'd be on safer ground doing it then than now. Um, but there were a number of decades leading up to the 50s and even after the 50s, a number of decades um, uh, where churches had people who believed differently about this particular issue and yet continued worshiping as fellow members of the same church. I'm not talking about visitors, now we're talking about fellow members of the same church. Um, so it's just an example from history. It doesn't necessarily make it right or wrong, it just say it, it is, it was. That members of the same church felt differently about this issue. In history, uh, people at times found ways to remain members of the same place in spite of that difference. Now, the story of how that division over this issue came to a head and calcified is one you can read about in various history books. One of those books is uh, Churches of Christ in the 20th Century by Ed Harrell, which is quite a, a good book and, um, and I think uh, helpful. Um, it's a book that overall has an overall history of Churches of Christ in the 20th century, uh, the first half. The second half is a biography of Homer Haley, who was a major figure in Churches of Christ, of course. Maybe some of you personally uh, knew him, but his life spanned most of that century, and he was a pretty major, major preacher. But there's an insight I want to share with you that, that Ed Harrell makes in the preface of that book that stuck with me. It's just uh, an historical, a social historical observation he makes about, about churches of Christ and about division. I'll just read it to you. He said, To those of Homer Haley's generation at the end of the 20th century, the churches of Christ remained one people. Haley's generation feuded, debated, and divided, but they began and ended their lifetimes as brethren. Ties of friendship, kinship, and comradeship are finally severed only with the passing of a generation. So, his observation is this. Even after the division over this issue, a pretty formal division over this issue in the mid-20th century, what he observes is those who had done the dividing, done the disagreeing and the dividing, ended their lives regarding one another as brethren. They had known each other. They had been taught the gospel and baptized by the same people. But they came to different conclusions about this issue. And so there were still ties um, and they, this generation, he says, that generation considered each other brethren. Now, mistaken, erring perhaps on this issue, they regarded each other, but brethren nonetheless. Harold notices that while that was true of that generation, basically their kids had nothing to do with each other. And the, the division was really not deep set until the following generation. Again, it's just an example of, uh, of how that worked. They regarded each other as brethren and erring perhaps, but it's in the next generation that, uh, that those ties were finally severed more completely. Now, let's circle in and get a little uh, closer to home. A fairly unique resource uh, we have access to here uh, is, a, is a young man sitting up front here named Leon Goff. Um, and I say he's a resource in this because he lived through that division that I've just briefly summarized. And he will tell you himself about how in college he was forced to decide what his own convictions were 
over this institutional question. These are very live and hot questions. And he was kind of forced, well, what do I think? What do I believe about this? In my judgment, he discerned uh, the more biblical path. It's what he teaches to this day. You know that, know that full well. He will teach you about the work of the church and how the church is to use its money. Well, Leon is not at all ashamed for me to share with you, and I double-checked with him, um, but he is not at all ashamed for me to share with you that he has, in good conscience, done exactly what this question is asking about. Um, so just for example, he's visited at North Jefferson for gospel meetings, and he's even been complimentary of the preaching done there um, and said that they, they preached a sermon about biblical authority that I thought was quite good. And he says my problem with it is they apply it uh, incorrectly. They don't apply it as consistently as it was preached in principle. Nonetheless, he, is, he has done that. He doesn't feel he's compromising his convictions to visit a place that he thinks has come to a wrong conclusion about those specific questions. So that's a more closer-to-home example a personal example. In my own life, I have done similar things in good conscience. Um, and I'll give you an example that's even a little uh, further out, a little uh, more extreme than, than the one I've given of Leon. Um, I befriended a man when I lived down on the Gulf Coast. I befriended a man who was an elder at a Mennonite church. A Mennonite church. Um, we had lunch a number of times. We talk about the Bible, talk about God and such. Very, uh, very nice guy, very kind, thoughtful guy. And he invited me once to one of their gospel meetings, and I accepted his invitation. I went as a gesture of goodwill to my Mennonite friend. I went as kind of a cultural experience. I was interested in it. I, I uh, liked this guy personally. He thought he had, he had some, uh, some wisdom to him. He certainly held the Bible in very high esteem. And it was a cultural experience. I went... Um, all the men had uh, beards without mustaches, the kind of Amish-style beards. I asked about that. Um, they had gender-segregated seating. All the men sat on one side. All the women sat on the other side in church. Um, I brought Megan with me. They didn't make us divide up. They kind of had a different set of policies for visitors. They let us sit together. But they had gender-segregated seating. Perhaps the most shocking thing I observed there was they greeted one another with holy kisses kind of were giving each other pecks on the cheek, including men. That was a little bit uh, jarring. Again, they didn't subject visitors to that, so I didn't have to get a holy kiss. Um, I will say, though, good a cappella singing. They, they sing a cappella there, and they, they sing very well. So that's, that's an even more extreme example than what this question is asking about. But I'll just say, I, I did not regard visiting that church as a compromising of my convictions. Um, I talked to my friend, the, the Mennonite friend, and he knew what I thought about things. And, and uh, I knew what he thought. Um, I don't think that visiting equals approving of everything that is believed and practiced somewhere. Simply visiting somewhere is not the same as approving and believing of, every, of everything. Now, of course, were I to decide to place membership at that Mennonite church, that would be a pretty big endorsement of what they believed and practiced. But I think visiting is a different matter. So, to wrap up, my own personal approach to this question uh, is to say I would be comfortable attending the gospel meeting of a less conservative congregation, to use the language of the question. Um, that is something that both I and Leon have done in good conscience. Um, I do think that that institutional church has wrongly applied biblical authority in that particular instance. But I also don't believe that visiting a place is the same as endorsing everything about it. And my conscience would be quite comfortable with that idea. Uh, but by no means am I saying that the differences are trivial. 
and that this doesn't matter. That's not the same thing. Now, there may well be someone here who totally disagrees with my approach and says, no, I couldn't do that. It would be an issue for me. And to you, I would say, mind your conscience about that. I'm not saying you have to go. I'm not saying you don't have to go. I'm saying you should mind your conscience about that. So that's my best crack at it. Um, This is one of those things that I don't have like a quick proof text. Okay, here's the example that quickly answers it. I think it's something about which uh, we simply need to develop some biblical discernment and wisdom about. Sometimes that's how, that's how God wants us to handle things. So uh, we never like to end without offering an invitation. We've been thinking about the Bible, been thinking about spiritual things, and someone here is, is, uh, is wondering about your own standing with God. If there's anyone here that needs to repent of some sin, anyone here that wants to come and give your life over to the Lord for the first time, whatever your need, come forward now as we stand and sing.